because you're jumping back into the gut. Hey coach, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter, at bballimmersion, or on Instagram, at basketballimmersion, to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Excited to welcome Charlotte Hornets assistant coach Nick Friedman to the Basketball Podcast. Friedman also currently serves as the associate head coach of the Haitian Senior Men's National Team. He received a promotion to assistant coach after spending the last two seasons with the Hornets as a player development coach, where he served a hybrid role with both the Hornets and the Greensboro Swarms coaching staff. He previously worked for three years as a coach in the G League with the Rio Grande Valley Vipers, Maine Red Claws, and Northern Arizona Suns. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Excited to be here. Um, big fan of what you do and, you know, to be included as a, as a guest on this platform is, you know, nothing short of an honor, man. A lot of, a lot of great basketball minds that you've uh, been able to interview and I'm excited just to talk hoops. Uh, me too. And, uh, you know, we've already got a taste of it. We talked privately a little bit and, uh, I'm just so excited to share so many of those conversations with, uh, so many people and, uh, you know, Nick, let's start with uh, something that's a bit of a passion project for you, and that's the mindset of uh, the role player. And particularly, I love the phrasing around ego adjustment, just great phrasing. So can you talk a little bit about why this is a passion for you? Yeah, I think the biggest obstacle for the majority of these guys coming into the NBA is they've been alpha males pretty much their entire lives. Um, and when, when you're that guy um, and you've been relied upon to be that guy your entire career, you know, you're walking into a situation where all 17 guys on your roster, you know, including your two ways, are very good players. In order to crack that, that top eight consistently, you know, as an incoming rookie, you know, I, obviously I don't have an exact number, but it's fair to say pretty much 95, 90%, 97% of these dudes have to do the sacrificial things very well in order to ultimately develop into creative handlers and playmakers and high volume scorers that they feel as if they are right now. And it's my job to help them, you know, accelerate that learning curve by adopting those habits as quickly as possible in order to get the minutes that they need uh, to prove themselves. I mean, it, it, it's really been, you know, my passion as a coach since, you know, I got into the G League in 2015 and being there with every step of the way with, you know, guys like Gary Payton, uh, Daniel House, PJ Dozier, you know, here in Charlotte with Jalen McDaniels, Caleb Martin, Cody Martin. And just seeing their growth and when those guys really figure it out and find themselves in rotation, it's a proud moment. And it, it just, it's very encouraging when you see guys uh, accept the mindset and adopt the mindset. So even more than the talent, it's getting them to understand the mindset of being a role player and accepting that, but also getting them to be able to see that as a role player, they can have a long, lucrative career. And that's got to be part of the mindset, isn't it? hundred percent. You know, everybody considers the term role player in a way not everybody of course but it's a death sentence right like it's a it's a hit to the heart a hit to the soul of like you're you you know you may be speaking you know down about my game when in reality it's no it's just accepting the corner running you know the the spatial awareness the offensive rebounding uh the being into the ball consistently on the defensive end just doing those things so you buy more trust uh from your head coach you know, when you accept that as it not being a threat to your ego or your game, 
you you grow. You know, you look at guys like Jeremy Grant, who for years were living in that world, and then boom, you break through and you find yourself in a position in Detroit where you know you're now a high volume handler and scorer, and you're able to get those reps and the and living in that role that you've envisioned yourself being in uh, since the day you started hooping. How do you get them beyond saying? that exact point where, oh, I just haven't had the right opportunity versus this is the reality I should, you know, be in the present in. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is the, the, you know, the concept of emulation, which I've been very big on. I think a lot of these guys, you know, the ones that make it, you know, don't have a problem with watching others who have succeeded doing the exact same thing. And that's what I've been impressed with the list of guys that I named earlier. Uh, they all have a willingness to at least learn and watch and say, you know what, I can take these steps in a similar fashion. And it's not, like I said, a threat to my ego. And that's really the key, I think, is just the emulation piece um, and showing them, you know, very concrete examples of guys doing those things at a very high level. So, and again, more of a curious question. You're not just showing them comparables in terms of skills and talent on the floor are you showing them comparables in terms of future contracts and possibilities and long-term career success yeah absolutely you know and i think the common denominator with guys who have gotten paid in those roles is that they win and in order to win you have to uh accept that sacrificial mentality um so you know those clips maybe may include just a, a sequence of a guy you know making a high level play in the offensive end where he may not touch it. He just may space the floor appropriately, sprint back and transition defense, dominate that defensive possession, go back and bang a, a corner three, you know? And it's like just watching the flow of the game. It's not necessarily just a single moment or clip, you know, you show maybe it's a, a, a snap drive where it's no indecision and playing off the catch. Of course you have those moments, but like the general theme of how you play and showing it to those guys and, and, and and them understanding, you know what, it may not show up in the box score, but us as evaluators, we value that at the highest level. I want to highlight that because that's something I share with a lot of clients too, is this concept. Because I, I never saw anything more impressive than when an NBA coach, and I'd sit in on a film session, spent about 10 minutes on clips of rim rollers, not getting the ball and pointing out their value to the play. And that was the whole film session was just to get dedicated to that. And can you give us some other examples of those type of things? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think a big one is just the consistency of, you know, what we call here in Charlotte through the moon. You know, just are, are you relentlessly attacking the offensive glass? Are you making your presence felt there and then does that trans translate to getting back on the on the defensive end in transition? You know, for us here this year, we we struggled in transition and you know, being able to show like high-level moments of that happening in the playoffs to our young guys is a small thing that can buy you you know, saving four to six points on the defensive end, you know, so I think that right there in and of itself is a great example. And then just the, the ultimate, you know, willingness to make the right read at the rim, whether it results in, in, in a assist in the box score or, or, you know, a hockey assist that doesn't necessarily exist on paper per se. But I think those are two high level examples of things that we need to preach on a daily basis that our guys, you know, off the rip won't necessarily acknowledge. And I imagine it's important to do those video sessions and acknowledge those things, not just for the role player, but for the star to see those things as well and to see the value of these players for them, right? Yeah, 100%. And it, you know, you watch these playoff games and these guys are all doing it. And if they don't do it, 
you see a, a level of self-correction. You know, a guy I've just been so unbelievably impressed by is Jason Tatum. You know, having been in Boston in 2018 when I was with the main Red Claws and seeing, you know, his growing pains in those era in those areas and his this it really really showing up at the highest level in the playoffs. I think you know I, I said this the other day, but there's not one young hooper in the world that shouldn't be watching that guy um, and really taking in the little things that he's doing to dominate the game and putting the Celtics in a position to win potentially win the NBA um, NBA chip. Yeah. And I know we can't take you far from your roots, which is player development. And one thing about player development, uh, and I'm curious about your perspective on it, is developing passing and the elements of passing, because it's such an important part of the modern game. We can all reflect on, say, that hook pass to the weak side. We called it a Ginobili. Uh, you know, different things like that. So can you talk a little bit about in the player development perspective, developing passing? Yeah, I was talking about this with a, a coach, a coach, I've, you know, Cody Topper, who's a mentor of mine the other day. and it's just like normalizing the skill of passing, right? Like the majority of individual workouts in the summer, I mean, how, how many passes are you throwing on average? And it's just like the, the consistent theme of like me, as opposed to like, why isn't a Euro power Euro spray to the corner an appealing thing? You know, it's not, it's considered skill by the coach, but I don't know if it's necessarily acknowledged as skill by the player. And I, when you're able to incorporate it at a high level and showing it happen and translate to a game for a player, it starts to be considered a skill. And ultimately, that's been a huge goal of mine is to help these guys accept playmaking as a high, highly valued skill. So for us, this is an example, like just counting the, the number of passes I had a, in a workout with one of our guys the other day, we made 61 game reads. You know, whether it's I'm, I'm snap driving and I'm reading the rim, whether it's an early advanced pa- pass off the nail, I'm playing pass and chase, I see a rescreen, and now I have to read whether or not to hit the po- pocket, hit the wing, or skip it to the corner. And it's just the, the reps on reps, just like shooting, just like finishing, that, you know, we as coaches, I don't necessarily think we consistently involve it enough. And that's, that's been a big staple of mine is how, how much we can create balanced players through the workouts that we're implementing. Hey, Coach, I just want to let you know Basketball Immersion is proud to partner with Just Play. I had the chance to spend some time with Just Play in New Orleans at the Final Four, and I was blown away by the next-level simplicity and effectiveness of this all-in-one solution for coaches to prepare faster and connect with today's players. Just Play provides an elite experience for coaches to better teach, scout, and recruit on one platform. Just Play integrates with any video editing solution to streamline how you prepare and engage your players. Sign up for a free demo, www.justplaysolutions.com forward slash bball immersion. Well, I love that you're sharing this because, again, I've been in many Division I programs and many NBA practices and stuff. And what you never see is you never see players passing because, again, a lot of the coaches say, well, the players don't pass. Well, if the coaches are getting all the passing reps, then your players aren't developing an important part of the skill, right? And there has to be a balance for that and really putting players in situations where they have to pass, like you just talked about. You're doing that because there's guided defense or there's coaches playing defense. Is that how that's happening? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, we're fortunate enough here, right, um, to have a pretty large video room, pretty large player development staff where we can manipulate situations, put bodies in there, make guys see tags and 
that's obviously helpful, but there are workouts where you have limited bodies where you can still work on the fluidity of a hook pass, the fluidity of a pocket pass, you know, and it may not necessarily show up right away, but it's just like the habit of making the pass. You know, it's like watering the plants with your form shoot, you know, with your form shooting, your spot shooting, like you still need to incorporate it. I think there's been this narrative for years that you it's it's very hard to develop feel. And I could not disagree with that more. Um, of course you're gonna have guys that are just unbelievably gifted natural playmakers and it's in their blood and they can just see things that you can't teach, but there are guys that you can work with to help them read the rim better and, you know, improve their assist numbers from one to two a game. And that's a massive difference. Just one more assist. Well, I would argue it's impossible to develop feel if you're doing on-air drills one-on-o all the time. And I think that's Mm -hmm. where some people come from is that their players never actually have to make decisions so they don't develop feel. And then to your point, they never have to make passes either. And that's a huge problem, isn't it? Huge problem. And, you know, we as coaches, we're always forcing the the idea of selflessness and showing it via film in a team setting. But when all, if all your workouts are based essentially on just your own individual skill of scoring the ball, you're not necessarily working on the mindset of making the right read. So, you know, it's definitely something that has to be worked on every day. Simple, you know, simple way that I've always incorporated is making two passes before you shoot five spot shots. And it's like, say I'm coming off a a DHO, you know, maybe you're not even having anybody guard him, but you're coming off a DHO, make the pocket pass. I'm rolling. I roll, I flip it right back to you. You re-space out for a step up, come off a step up, pocket pass. Now you're relocating to the corner, then you get your 10 reps. And it's just a high volume way to throw two passes while getting high volume shots up. So I love this. And uh, BDT shooting, whether you're familiar with it or not, is basically the active participation of both players. But one player in particular is the passer and queuing decisions uh, for their teammate with task representative decisions. And I've had coaches tell me that their players would never be the passer in that. And that's why they would never do that. And I've just said to them, well, then you're missing opportunities to connect skills and decisions in a really meaningful way for both players. Um, And it just, again, it surprises me, but it encourages me hearing you talk about this. At the NBA level, you know, you you always respect the individual space of guys need to get their own individual work in. And I think we get unnecessarily scared off by doing group work and making these guys just develop feeling playing together, throwing swing, swing passes throwing early what we call Montana reads before the paint to each other and just getting that feel of just natural, simple playmaking. Like it's a small added element, but if you continuously work on it together, like you'll see it come up and pick up, you know, and then now guys are vibing at a far higher level than if, you know, all their workouts and, and, and individual skill is just by themselves. If you can go, where does the word Montana reads come from? And uh, give us a little more detail on that. That's a, a, a Chad Isky term. Okay. Uh, shout out Chad Isky. It's just the, you know, we talk about touching the paint, relentless paint, paint touches, but one way to get there is just passing before the paint. Uh, and that was a big key for us was, you know, we were very, we, we were able to get to the nail at a high level. We were top three in the league and in, in paint touches, but the majority of our, of the reason as to why we were successful in touching the paint in high volume was because we were just willing to get off of it early. You know, we could have done a better job of it, of course. Like we were never, not necessarily perfect, but I think our guys adopted the mindset of 
making that early advance pass, making that early swing pass, and then ultimately get to the action that helps us touch the paint. So that's, that's the, for us as a Montana read, it's just the early nail kick. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, you mentioned top three in the league in paint touches. And another thing that was really valuable and important for you guys is hitting the pocket. Can you talk about that in terms of pocket passes to the roller? To the first uh, half of the season, we, we actually didn't hit it as much as we should have. And then, you know, I think one thing that uh, Coach Borrego has done an unbelievable job of in Charlotte is just having those conversations with players of what do you see? And Mason Plumley, who is a very high level playmaker in the pocket and just high level play, playmaker in general, you know, kind of brought up the idea of like, coach, like, find me in the pocket, I'll make plays. And we, we started to trust it more by hitting him, hitting PJ, obviously hitting Trez once we added him. And it just added another layer of versatility to our offense, especially against teams that are just dropped. You're playing against Valentinus, you're playing against Vucevic, like you have to take advantage of hitting the early pocket pass to then, you know, help making these teams respect tags. And we started doing that in very high volume as the year went on and it really, really helped our offense. I don't know the percentages, but just intuitively from watching games, I assume is drop coverage the dominant ball screen coverage now in the NBA? You know, I got to do a better job of knowing the, the exact percentages myself, but that's one thing that even in workouts, like I need to do a better job of is that I do simulate a lot of drop coverages and I naturally teams, you're not seeing it as much, you know, you're seeing a little bit more like teams looking to blitz, obviously, you know, reds are huge switches. Uh, that's our terminology for switching, but just, you know, you're going to see it in, in decent volume, but you're looking at teams doing a lot more being up at the level and aggressive and reading one through five. Yeah, very interesting. And I would have said switching was probably the other one in terms of seeing that a lot too. Something else that uh, I want to get your opinion on is Zooms. So for us, Zoom is just passing and chasing. So yeah. you're, you're hitting your big man. You, know, you can play it with, some, with your threes and fours if you're playing four out, one in, but just not waiting on pick and rolls and playing a little bit of get game, pass and chase game, and then making decisions from there. And it's just that, that level of, Hey, is my big going to keep it? Is he going to give it back and just, you know, let them hoop from there? It's just the unpredictability of splits, you know, not necessarily your traditional delay splits where you're hitting the five and now you're going into low angle splits, but more just so the, the kit, the, the randomness of I'm hitting my five and now I'm sprinting over the top and cutting to the rim. I'm sprinting over the top and playing random splits on the opposite, on the weak side. And we, we started to really do a good job of just allowing our players to direct themselves and playing out of those actions. And it just added a whole nother level of unpredictability of our, to our offense. And, and a big part of that is, is what we're seeing is not giving it to the cutter, right? And then letting that cutter, cutter curl the gap and go to the rim and put pressure on the rim. And that leads to secondary options. What are some of the preferred secondary options off of that when you don't give it to the cutter? I love the, the low split on the opposite, uh, on the weak side, the low split or the high split on the weak side. And, you know, tight curling, go cutting, which is just a straight basket cut by the guy who initiated the zoom, your ears just back doors and playing off of that. But I love the weak side splits, whether it's high or low and manipulating that and just, you know, letting your guys go to work. You know, I'm, I'm the biggest believer in player direction. You know, you look at the breakdown of your flow offense, right? After make, after miss possessions that you necessarily can't control all the time, there's about 60 of them. 18 of those are going to be transition, right? So now you're looking at 40 
true half court flow possessions where you have to let your guys play. Now there has to be that structured freedom, right? Of they're playing within your triggers, but the more that your triggers can be owned by your players, that's great offense in my opinion. Yeah, it's great offense for sure. And uh, fun to watch. And uh, you talked about the, the best offenses are player directed. Can you give us some other examples of where player directed comes into play in your offense? Yeah, it's just it's just the recognition of of what trigger we're in, you know, and it, that was a, a huge point of emphasis in terms of player development for our point guards like Mello and Terry is just can can you orchestrate the trigger on your own? Are you going to wait on coach to call one, or you know, you're going to understand and recognize what what the spacing is look like looking like, whether it's five out or four out, and just and hoop from there. So I think the overall mentality is a big aspect of being able to teach it and helping your guys, you know, own that that concept of player direction did you find that that initially like there was a little bit of structure to that in terms of say coach call but then gradually it became more free and less necessary for the coach to call or from the beginning did you just open it up and give the freedom to the players yeah it's a progression you know i think we we had a pretty good balance of it and you know through our first five games you know we were pretty prolific offensively and then you you find it getting a little ugly and you feel like you have to reel it in but that's where you can't take your foot off the gas pedal and you've got to accept those growing pains. You know, if you want to play organized, high-paced basketball, it's not going to look pretty every step of the way. You're going to have to teach it. You're going to have to accept that flawed aspect, that ugly aspect of it. But when it fully comes together and guys start to own the system, that's when it's really beautiful. Alex Sarama with the BDT Offense talks about neutral as the key that kind of triggers flowing into something conceptual from there. Is that the similar thing when, when the defense recovers and it's neutral and there's no advantage to be able to, again, keep attacking and kicking or dominoes or different things like that? Is that when you flow into conceptual? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like the, the play after the play mentality of like when, when it all breaks down, whether I'm starting five out and we play off of a drag and that that first option of hitting a pocket, hitting a, a shakeup or now getting off it early off the nail no advantage is created. What are we doing? And that's, that's another huge element of playing high paced flow basketball is what's your strategy when it dies, right? Are you bringing your five up? Are you keeping them low and now playing, you know, bringing, bringing your smalls into pick and rolls and slipping out or rolling and playing off that way. But like really committing to an identity of play after the play is, is huge to then making sure that your flow offense is productive when those triggers don't work. So in, in saying that, I'm curious, is there anything, are you seeing anything different evolve, say, you know, last eight seconds of the shot clock, last five seconds of the shot clock, other than high ball screen? Like we're seeing some more variable stuff, aren't we? Yeah, much more, you know, especially against teams that are switching one through five, you know, isn't an advantage to bring your five back up if he hasn't been able to seal and get a, t- a touch deep against a small that you want to keep them lower. Do you want to bring in a small who's spaced in the corner on the wing into another pick and roll? Because one thing is that's really hard to guard is when, you know, say you're, you're, you've got your one up top with a five switched onto him, bring a small into that mismatch to screen and slip out. And then now the five has to guard that slip out in a closeout situation. That's tough. And it's hard to get players to adopt that mindset because when they see a five, it's naturally like, let me just space four out one in and go to work. But, you know, you're seeing these elite switch guys that that advantage doesn't work. And they're so teams are so good at loading up to the ball 
that, you know, it's, hey, maybe let me use another screen to get an advantage downhill, or now I'm throwing back to play off of that mismatch. You've seen a lot more pre-switching too, which is uh, an evolution of switching and uh, trying to get, you know, not let a team hunt your matchups. So have you seen any good counters or have you had any good counters to kind of pre-switching and attacking that? Yeah, I just think it's just the pace at which you're going to go. You know, mm-hmm. the, the quicker, if you are going to bring your smalls up, the quicker that you can identify it and not let the play die and then get stagnant and say, you know what, I want him, I want him to come into this action as opposed to like, let's recognize our concept right away and play off of theirs. I think the, the number one counter, you have, to, you have to ride that fine line of not making things overly complex. And I think there's a, there's a number of things that you can do, but the simpler, the better. Another thing you've done a lot in Charlotte is screening with the guards. So can you talk about using guards as screeners? That, that play after the play concept is huge in terms of evolving them as screeners. You know, and then it's, you've got your four out one in. You've got your high-level high playmakers on the wing, whether it's your Miles Bridges or your P.J. Washington. How do you involve them as handlers? And that's when you can start playing. Instead of playing pass and chase and you're coming back off of it, now you're throwing it or zooming it with a P.J. Washington, you're going to screen for him. You know, you see Denver, Denver's done it for a number of years, but that was an action that we got really, really good at is just recognizing. I think we could have done it more in the flow as opposed to as a play call, and that's when it's really deadly. But that, that concept of day one, how do you get your smalls to accept screening as a high-value skill set? For a guy like Terry Rosaire, he's upwards like 1.3, 1.4 points per possession as a screener. That's elite. And being able to, you know, more than five times a game involved in that action in the flow of play is when it's really, really successful. Look, are most of the time those leading to then ISO situations in terms of that you're getting a matchup onto, say, Tori, Terry Rozier and then snapping back to him and letting him attack that matchup? Yeah, you get a lot of throwback, more so throwback threes. Like okay. those are the ones that you get. And then with a guy like Miles Bridges, you're just turning the corner and getting downhill. Like the, it's just like the non-stagnant advantages. Now, if you other teams that do a great job of scouting, NBA is, is tough. It's like if you commit to something game after game after game and don't tweak, these, these coaches are so good. These players are so smart that you have to add small elements of, of tweaking those concepts, those actions, or maybe it's like you go away from it from a game or maybe go away from it for, you know, a three out just so it's not in your scout, but just getting creative with, with how you're, you're getting to those slip outs. If it's really part of your identity is, is huge. It strikes me as, I mean, periodization is so important in terms of, uh, you know, physical development of a player over a season. And it strikes me a little bit in terms of some of this play calling you just alluded to is periodization of that as well, that uh, you, you can't run the same thing every game. And it's almost like you have to have this periodized schedule so that you know these things exist, but you can't run them all the time or they get used to defending it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And that's why the player direction aspect of it is so, is so critical. Because so that they become more random and variable in terms of how they have happened? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. You know, are they recognizing on demand of how to play out of a drag in a five out versus a four out situation on their own? Are they able to find these slip out actions in, in both alignments on their own? Like I said, when you get to that point, that's when it's far less predictable and you don't have to be so overly concerned as a coach of like, I got to control the game. Of course, it gets to that point of like, now you've got your 20 to 30 dead ball possessions where you can really control it and manipulate it and say, hey, you know what? This team is terrible at guarding the pocket. How are we going to put them in actions as much as possible to 
to make sure that we're playing out of those actions. So these guard to guard screens, obviously ghosting is an option, but let's say they're going to set the screen. Are you talking inside hip? You're talking high hip? Where are you talking in terms of getting the screen to be able to force the reaction you want? The, uh, the lower third. So, mm-hmm. you know, the way I break it down is you got your, your upper third, which is probably like the, the high quad, you know, front of your quad. And you got your middle third, which is like directly, you know, in line. And then the, the lower third, which is, you know, pretty much like, you know, your, your, your glutes and just like making slight contact there and forcing the indecision of like, can I really switch on the underside here and take away the advantage. So, you know, for us, it's big on talking about the upper, middle and lower third, but lower third is where you want to hit. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. And and you already alluded to this, an early offense appreciation. You love early offense. And I know one of the things that you looked at was kind of evaluating rim runners. And what did that, uh, what were some of the conclusions from that evaluation of rim running? When I first started my journey through the NBA, I was all the way five out. I came up in D'Antoni's system and then I had the opportunity to run an offense in Northern Arizona where we manipulated that system and played predominantly all five out to start possessions, right? Basketball ultimately will finish four out one in once you have a screener that rolls, but our alignments always started really five out. And then as my career progressed more to Charlotte, it became a little bit more of an emphasis on four out one in, and, and it was foreign to me. It was it was a little bit different and it was a great learning experience of being able to, to find that balance between both. But headed into the season, you know, having more responsibility in the offensive end, uh, watching these teams, Milwaukee, for example, like you saw a, a very interesting balance between both. And I think at times it's like we get too heavy five out or four out one in, and that's our identity as opposed to like, no, it's it's a balanced game. And what as a project of mine personally, breaking down our flow possessions. Like I said, you're playing pretty much 40 to 42 possessions of, of an NBA game out of flow. And if you break down and, and watch how possessions start, it's pretty much an even split between possession starting a five out versus four out one in just to start the possession. So for me, like teaching your rim run reads is to me day one of training camp. As a big, when you get a rebound, right, and you're outletting, naturally, you're probably going to be five out. Now, if you've got a guy like Kai Jones, who's an elite athlete, and he comes down with a board and his man is right next to him, it becomes a foot race at times. Like, that's your read. But if you're caught outside the paint at some point and you know, you're, you're not in any rebound position, position, you're probably running the rim, and then now you're starting in a four-out, one-in alignment. And from there, it's just knowing your triggers. But... That's where the element of unpredictability comes in because, you know, your, your four out and your five out triggers can be very similar. It's just different alignments. So you can still play out of you know, a drag in, in each situation when you're essentially shorting it there or you're immediately flowing into step ups. It's really your world and what you want to do. My preference is if you're, if your biggest rim run, you're keeping them there for a second to let things develop. And then when the play breaks down, you're bringing them back up. That's a lot of what my mindset was, but it was interesting to break down our 20 best offensive games from a season ago and seeing like, wow, like we were a heavy four out one team. We put a heavy emphasis on that, but ultimately we ended up playing essentially in an even split between five out and four out. So just accepting that balance and getting really good at playing in both is, is key. Hey coach, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a product I love and have used with my teams and now with my daughters in our backyard, Dr. Dish. 
Use promo code IMMERSION for exclusive savings on any of the machines. Dr. Dish Basketball is accelerating player performance with the most innovative game-like training solution available, allowing coaches and players to get better faster than ever before. By providing the most usable and advanced shooting machines, on-demand workouts, multiplayer stat tracking, and instant analytics, Dr. Dish Basketball has become the preferred source for basketball training with progressive coaches and players. A reminder, use promo code IMMERSION for exclusive savings on any of the machines. And I want to come back to that a little bit, but I also want to talk about the dunker spot because I can picture like obviously Cody Zeller before and uh, Plumlee, like different guys like that that play really well as playmakers out of the dunker spot as well. And when we talk about rim running, like we're not talking about traditional stay in the post. We're talking about then emptying to dunker spots. Is that yeah, what we're saying? Yeah. And then you got a, a lot of a lot of teams and coaches don't necessarily care where your big space is in terms of what dunker, whether it's ball side or opposite. I, I hear a lot of a lot of ball side uh, dunker spacing just to open up slot drives. Me personally, I like strong side dunker spacing because it now opens more nail attacks and we're looking to hit the nail and play from there to open up snap drives or, or, or slot drives in the opposite wing. And then now if like that guy doesn't have an avenue to drive it, maybe it's a, a two-man game with your four you know, in, the, in that trail wing spot playing in a DHO involving himself as a screener with an empty side, right? So now you have the empty side, okay, that small is now coming out the DHO. He's got nothing open there. Reverse it back to your one. And then now you're in a step up in a third side situation, but you're not like that deep into the clock where it's panic mode. You know, you're probably playing with 13, 14 seconds on the clock and you're still fluid. You're still grooving and you're still in a position to now touch the paint with time left to go on the clock. So I want to say, I want to say it was Phoenix. I saw a team run actually a dribble handoff to the dunker spot, say from a stack out, high post entry, dribble handoff to the dunker spot. I just thought such creativity and uh, different types of things because as the game evolves, like we're seeing so, so many playmakers at every position to be able to find a way to use them is uh, part of the fun of it for you now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's like, I really wish I could be reincarnated as a, uh, <laughs> as a five man. And it's such a fun position. It's such a fun position to coach and teach. You know, when when your fives really figure it out and, and understand that rim running or rim running or non-rim running and spacing in general is, is a is such a highly valued skill that again doesn't come up in the box score and is massively sacrificial and gets you paid. Again, that's a joy. I, I'm sure again, you might not know percentages, so I'm just throwing out a random question, but like this tradition maybe 25 years ago of hitting the rim runner in the flow in transition it just seems to not happen anymore. And I got to say that's probably because transition defense is so good at accounting for that, but you're not seeing that very often. Are you hitting ahead to the rim runner? Yeah. You don't see it in, uh, in high, high volume. I think you see more of like the, the seal in transition in a rim run situation, a guy who does it well, you know, he may leak out a little bit too much at times, but like a Montrez Harrell where he's contesting on the perimeter and now he's rim running and sealing and throwing it in. Like that's, that's really tough to guard. And I don't know the points per possession on that per se off the top of my head. It's a good project for me. But like when you do hit steals, it's pretty high percentage in general in transition. So that's that's a part of it as well as thinking about um, cross matchups in transition, which is a place that you see that as well. If you see a cross matchup in transition, especially at the rim, is that immediately a flow in terms of trying to get the ball to that high low or playing off of that? I think you got to teach your guys to be a threat for sure. Like if you're running the rim and you're not putting pressure on a small first is just to explore it. 
Like, I don't think you're necessarily taking advantage of that player's skill set all the way, but then there has to be the recognition of I can't clog. Like, the minute I don't get it, I'm out. I'm clearing corners, I'm spacing, and then I'm relying on those guys to develop as playmakers. I think, like, we've done a good job with our threes and fours, like, developing as handlers because we've allowed them to space and come off DHOs coming out of the corner. And I think overall, if, like, your program is about development, that style of basketball of like committing to playing five out and giving them freedom to space in the perimeter, it does help with overall versatility. I know I get asked this a lot. I'm sure you do as well. When to rim run versus when to trail. Can you break that down for us a little bit deeper in terms of how you teach that? I think the, the first and foremost aspect of it that I wouldn't say gets confusing, but we can do a better job as coaches clarifying is just your spacing after mates and flow. There's the mentality of, do you want your, just your fours and fives to inbound or do you want just whoever's closest to the ball to inbound in order to play fast? But I think at times, whoever's closest can create a level of freneticism that you may not like. I'm perfectly fine with it, but it can, flow, it can throw off the, the balance of your floor as opposed to like when if you are a team that wants to play predominantly five out, your five man is in the paint, he's closest to the ball make it the mentality of like, if your five man is closest to us, take it out. And then now you're playing five out. Or is it the mentality of your five man isn't closest to it. So now it's whoever's, you know, closest to the ball taking it out and you're automatically in four out one in spacing. So it's really just about the preference of what you like. Me, me personally, I'm, I'm a big fan of just five man. If you're closest to it, you're taking it out because your fives are so skilled these days that I don't think it's, it's a turnover. It's turnover city if they're taking it out. You know, they can run the baseline. They can now you've got your smalls as high, in high outlet positions, and you're naturally f- flowing into your five-out triggers with little confusion. And you were with Dan Antonio. Did, did that change a lot in his time, or did he stay true to closest player inbounding, or what, what, what was it? Well, in, in RGV with Coach uh, Matt Brazzi, was we really had our fours taking it out the majority yeah. of the time. And then you had your fives, like Chinano and Waku, just slow trailing into play, and we were just hooping out of that. But like you go to you go to programs and uh, that are more rim running based, I think the inbounding responsibility, while you don't want to overcomplicate it, of course, is definitely something that like is a small nuance that you have to address when you're implementing your offense. Well, and I've seen that discussion quite a bit in terms of designating the exact lane and the exact spot a player runs actually helps them play freer because they know exactly what their responsibility is. And then that obviously leads to this better spacing structure. Is that the case in the NBA or is it a little bit more free? No, I definitely think it's the case. And, you know, if you're just like looking at our offense in, in retrospect, when we were at our best, our after make offense was highly, highly efficient. Mm. You know, we were always in the green in the top 90th percentile when our after make efficiency was, was super high. There's a little bit of a distinct a difference that you have to make between transition offense after makes and flow offense after makes. When your flow offense is, is high level and you're able to flow into triggers freely without thinking too much, that's when your offense is at your best. So to be able to maximize our running habits and not overthinking about them is the number one goal, in my opinion, of how you want your guys to play. Uh, for example, how does second spectrum define the difference between transition and flow in terms of that? I mean, a primary versus a secondary type of flow. Well, I don't, I don't really know uh, second spectrum's definition, but for us, it's always been the first second. So the first six seconds of the shot clock is defined as transition. Okay. Um, and so those, those are like when 
So it doesn't matter the number of passes or the action. It's just within this time frame. No, and you know, and that and that's the interesting thing is that you may be playing out of pistol per se, right? And still mm-hmm. score in the first six seconds of the shot clock, but it's great organized early offense. And that's why I ask it, because again, like it's you know, it's maybe semantics, but it's a curiosity because once you kind of flow into an action or you get multiple passes, some people might define that more as flow as right. opposed to primary. So it's just curious. Right. Yeah, and that's and that's where we as coaches, you know, you have your offensive coordinators. Shout out to Jay Triano, the legend himself. But, you know, he breaks down every possession after every game. And he's noting, you know, what our flow numbers versus transition numbers may be. And, that, and that's different than what at times is put together in our post-game reports. You know, that their transition numbers may be different than what our transition numbers are, our flow numbers are, because uh, of just what we're watching, per se, versus just the, the time on the clock. Well, and what's more important is what you guys define it as for sure. So I was just curious as there is more of a general definition, because I know that is a challenge and even looking at synergy numbers sometimes and not truly understanding what they define as transition versus not. So um, amazing stuff. Uh, Coach, I mean, yeah, I want to come back. I mean, you you mentioned ego adjustment and uh, role playing or the value of role players. So I'm curious because this is also the progression that you went through as a coach somewhat as well to be able to become this great role player that you are as an NBA assistant. Can you talk a little bit about that process too? Yeah. Everybody's personal growth and development revolves around the idea of truth. And if you can't accept the truth and you can't understand that correction is not criticism, you're going to have a very hard time of succeeding at the highest level of basketball or the highest level of any industry that you're in. So as a young coach, having gotten into the G League at you know, 824, working as a manager before that for Coach Laranega, uh, and before that as a Division three player, you know, you, you come into these situations having to do the dirty work, right, that you never really expected. And so as a coach, you allow those teachings to kind of translate into how, you, you know, you handle your players and how you truth tell to your players. And for me, it's, it's, always, it's always been uncomfortable, right? Like growing into a coach that's not afraid to tell the truth is, is everything at this level. and when you have guys that accept it and understand that it's not criticism, that's when you truly begin to blossom and you see huge strides made in your players. Um, so to be able to lead with the mindset of the truth is your salvation and standing by that and making that your moral backbone, I think it's the number one thing uh, in terms of helping guys like really fight that battle of adjusting their ego. So, so I'm curious, has, have you had mentors in your life you know, through coaching that have given you that truth in terms of feedback to help you develop as a coach? Oh yeah, hundred percent. And there've been times where it's, it's, it's killed me in a lot of ways, right? Like you, you walk away. Of course you're human coach. You're You're human. human. (laughs) But at the same time, it's, it's for the ultimate betterment of you. And if you can really decipher that love and truth, and know that where that truth is coming from is out of a place of love, then you're going to grow. You know, it, it, again, like I'm making it sound as if like, oh, you got to tell the truth and that's it. No, it's, there's a neutrality behind it, right? It's a positive neutrality. For me, I, I live in the positive. Yeah, that, that's just how I operate. It's a game that I love. There are things far bigger than the game itself. And we're here and we have an, an unbelievable opportunity to make money and win playing this game that we love. So whenever... I'm critical or telling the truth. It's coming from a place of genuinely just wanting to see you succeed. 
And if you live your life that way, things become a lot less, a lot more stress-free. Uh, and you can really understand like, man, it, it, this really wasn't that hard to maybe space a corner or make the extra pass because that ball is going to find me if I do those things. That's just how the universe works. Beautiful message, coach. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, thanks for all you shared on this podcast. Just incredible insights. I appreciate it, my man. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Basketball Podcast. Learn more from some of the best coaches in the world at ImmersionVideos.com. At ImmersionVideos.com, our unwavering commitment to you is to offer the tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. If you're a better coach now than you were yesterday, we've done our job, and so have you. The goal is to focus on authentic sharing of resources you can use to help your players and teams improve. Drills, tactics, techniques, philosophies, practice design, and so much more will be shared from numerous coaches, including Nate Oates, Doug Novak, Aaron Fern, Dave Smart, and so many more to come. Go to ImmersionVideos.com now to check out all the products and follow at ImmersionVideos on Twitter to keep up to date. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Mm-hmm.